from the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come also here. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. A friend of mine was pastoring a West Texas church, and he became somewhat burdened about some of the things that were um, happening in his community, his town, uh, political corruption, and um, I won't bore you with the gory details. But one Saturday night, as he was getting ready to preach on Sunday morning, he could stand the burden no longer. And he went in to tell his wife that to, to prepare her that next morning he was going to lay aside his prepared sermon and he was going to speak to some political issues that were, um, he believed, a part of the problems of his town. When he stood to preach, his words were like hand grenades tossed among the crowd. There was a violent eruption of resentment and anger. He began to get death threats and late night telephone calls. One day the florist in town delivered a black death wreath to his office door. And one Sunday morning when he stood to preach, he had just finished reading his text, when the sheriff and his deputies burst into the auditorium screaming, everybody vacate this building, there's going to be a bomb go off in five minutes. During that time, I was doing ministry uh, mission work in the Northwest, and I was leading a crusade in Seattle. I took 120 people up to speak in all the Baptist churches in the Northwest Convention. I asked him to come and preach the rallying sermon, all the preachers and all the churches together in one large auditorium. He took his text from this passage I read, and talked about how to turn a town upside down. When the gospel of Jesus Christ exploded upon the first century, it turned the world upside down. And Judaism and paganism was shaken to its roots. And in less than a decade, every community in the known world had had the gospel preached to it. A little while back, William Bennett wrote an article in Life magazine entitled, Where Are All the Heroes Gone? And he decried he, the, the, the fact that we have, become to, we have begun to bunk our heroes. Our heroes are those which Hollywood produces, men who can fly, Superman and Batman and Star Wars characters, said William Bennett. Our heroes are these imaginary people who can fly, 
or who have instant muscles by drinking by eating a can of spinach. But where are the people, he said, of the real world, the heroes who can get us out of the mess we're in? Somebody put it like this. I, on the first Saturday of last month, a 22-year-old U.S. tennis player hoisted a silver bowl over his head at center court at Wimbledon. On the day before, five blind mountain climbers, one man with an artificial leg and an epileptic and two deaf adventurers stood atop the snow-capped summit of Mount Rainier. It was a noisy victory for the tennis player who shared it with 14,000 fans some of whom had slept on the sidewalks outside the club for six nights waiting for tickets. It was a quiet victory for the climbers who led their own cheering. There was a lot of rhetoric exchanged at Wimbledon regarding bad calls. At Mount Rainier, they learned to live with life's bad calls a long time ago. The first man to reach the mountaintop tore up his artificial leg in getting there. Somehow in all of this, I see a parallel that all Americans are going to have to come to grips with. In our search for heroes and heroines, we often lose our perspective. We applaud beauty pageant winners. We ignore the women without limbs who paint pictures with a brush in their teeth. We extol the courage of a man who will sail over Ten cars on a motorcycle. We give no thought or parking space to the man who treads his way through life in a world of darkness and silence. Not all winners are heroes. Not all handicapped people are heroes. Hero is a term that should be awarded to those who, given a set of circumstances, react with courage, dignity, decency, and compassion people who make us feel better for having seen or touched them. I think the crowds went to the wrong summit and cheered the wrong champion, end of quote. What I want to do this morning is to go to the right summit and cheer the right champion. And I want us in a, in a, in a, in a few remaining moments to try to determine the kind of people that make a difference, who turn the world upside down, the kind of people who change things. Number one, I believe they're the people who are focused upon the main things. They have goals. They have dreams. They have plans. They live by meaningful specifics. One of the changes that Jesus Christ makes in our life when He comes into our life is that He changes us from wandering generalities to meaningful specifics with a plan and a purpose. Now, I don't know how much these, this New Testament church designed the strategy that it had to conquer the world, but you cannot read the the story of the Apostle Paul and the men who walked with him, with him without recognizing that there was a specific day-by-day day claiming the world, a synagogue at a time, and you can literally trace their journeys by the steps they took. There must have been a plan. 
strange thing when the Arkansas Razorbacks and the Duke Blue Devils teed off or jumped center court a few weeks ago. Not just the fact the Razorbacks won. Not only was that strange, but, but when they went down the court, they, they, they discovered they had no goals. Do you see that game? And so they played the entire game just running up and down the court and nobody shot because there were no goals. Now, it didn't happen that way. Because without goals, nobody could tell if he won or lost or if he, how he measured up to the competition or whether he was on target or off target. For nobody would play a game without goals, a basketball game without goals. Why is it? that you and I are willing to live our lives without a specific plan, day-by-day plan, or goal? Why is it that many of us are willing to wander through life aimlessly without a purpose or plan of achievement? Somebody's got to begin somewhere. And some of us need some kind of goals. Let me suggest some. How about establishing this morning in this congregation some goals that will enable you to change your world? How about just beginning this way? How many of you would be willing to say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes every day in prayer and in Bible study? And who of you would have as this, your, as this as your goal? I'm going to make a commitment to give 10% of my income to Jesus Christ and His church. I've always wanted to do that. I've just never begun to do it. I make that my goal. Or maybe you could just even say something as simple as this. I'm going all of this summer to make it a point to be in every evening service and in every prayer service. This summer, I make that my goal. Or how many of you would say this morning, this is my goal and I commit myself to it, that through the months I'm going to share the gospel with at least two people every month. Somewhere in this town, somebody is in need of Christ. And so this summer I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with at least two people. Now what I think involved in this, what is involved in this is a, is a commitment a lifelong commitment to excellence. I may not be the best, but I will be my best. I read somewhere the other day that Van Cliburn still practices six hours a day. Somebody asked him why. He said, why would I ever want to be less than I've been? Ray Nitschke, after he had made all pro and retired from professional football, still runs six miles a day. Why would he ever want to be less than his best? A lifelong commitment to excellence. Pistol Pete Maravich was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame in 1987. When he was in college, he averaged over 44 points a game his entire collegiate career. He became a professional basketball player and and averaged 24 points a game in his professional career. How'd he do it? Until he was 14 years of age, he took a basketball to bed with him at night. He'd throw it up in the air, catch it on his fingers, and do finger exercises with it. He rode to town two and a half miles from his home on a bicycle, dribbling a basketball from the time he was eight years of age. 
And sometimes he dribbled over gravel, and sometimes he dribbled around potholes and mud holes, but every day he rode to town and back two and a half miles dribbling a, ba dribbling a basketball. He was called a basketball android. He said one time, a basketball is the extension of my hands. A commitment to excellence. Why would anybody ever settle for less than the best? If I'm going to be a member of this church, I want to be the best I can be. If I'm going to be a Sunday school teacher, why would I ever not be the best? If I'm going to be a father or a husband, if I'm going to be a family man, why would I not desire to be the best one possible? And why would I ever accept less than the best as a Christian follower of Jesus Christ? That becomes our goal a step at a time. Second, the kind of people who turned the world upside down were the kind of people who had a positive attitude toward obstacles. Everybody encounters obstacles in life. We all do. The difference is how we view them. I'm absolutely convinced, it's my humble and accurate opinion, that the level of one's accomplishment and the quality of one's life is determined by how he sees it. Carl Menninger of Menninger Clinic said that attitude is more important than fact. And there are at least two kinds of things to be said about these people who turn the world upside down as they encounter these problems every day. One was that they refused to give up. And they refused to give in. Now let me read you something that just reflects the attitude of one of these men who turned the world upside down. It's found in the second book of Corinthians, chapter 4. Listen to it. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. I am wounded, he said, but I'm not slain. I will lay me down and bleed a while, but I will rise to fight again. These men never, ever gave in to obstacles. They never surrendered to their problems. They never quit. And in every single case, I challenge you to challenge me on it. In every single case of these men who turned the world upside down, they saw their obstacles as an opportunity of ministry. It's how you look at it. I like the story of the, comes out of Budapest, of the man who went to his rabbi and he said, you know, life is unbearable, I can't stand it. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? And the, and the rabbi said, get you a goat and take the goat into the room and come back and see me in a week. When he saw him again, the man was more forlorn than ever before. He said, oh, life is much more unbearable than it's ever been. That goat stinks. I mean, it's nasty. He said, well, let the goat go and come back and see me in a week. When he came back, the man was just 
ecstatic. I mean, he was glowing. He said, man, life is wonderful now that we got rid of that goat and there are only nine of us. That's how you look at it. Zig Paulson tells about a flight from Jamaica to, the, to New York City. He said, I was looking out the window at the beautiful cloud formations when all of a sudden it became apparent to me that there was a there was a flaw in the glass window and I was seeing everything in a distorted way. Two men were in prison. One looked out and saw bars. The other looked out and saw the bars. How do you see your problems? Now I, suggest, I want to suggest four things, four ways to look at your problems. I'll do it quickly. Number one, every problem has a master. There's a miracle for every mountain. You may, have, you may not have the answer to your problems, but somebody can give you the answer. There is somebody somewhere who can always help you. Albert Einstein never remembered his telephone number. And somebody asked him, why don't you know your telephone number? He said, why should I? I can always look it up. I may not have all the answers, but I know where to look for them. Second, there is not a single problem that you'll ever encounter that does not have a positive aspect to it. It has some kind of positive aspect. And so they put these men in prison and they converted the prison guards. And so they hung them on crosses and their blood watered the soil in which the church was, was born. And so they persecuted them and their persecution inspired others. There's always a positive aspect to every problem. Tom Solwar has a book entitled Good Morning Mark. Tom Solwar is a remarkable person. He, has to he, he holds two national collegiate wrestling championships. He holds a doctor of clinical psychology from Harvard. He jogs six miles every day. He skydives. You say, well, what's so remarkable about that? The man's totally blind. And Tom Solwar said, I see my disadvantage as an advantage. Number three, every problem is temporary. The night always gives way to the dawn. The darkness always yields to the bright. And the storm always succumbs to the still. Or problems are usually distortions of the way I see them. That is to say, most of us look at things in life from a distorted perspective, and they're not as bad as we think they are. I, must be, I need to be suspicious of my viewpoint toward the things that happen to me in life because most of the time, my viewpoint is pretty well distorted. Some of us are just naturally negative. I've got an uncle, or had an uncle, he's deceased now, who, you know, the least little thing, oh, it's a terrible tragedy. Many of us are like that. Like the little boy said to his dad, I'm just, I think I'm going to fail this test today. And his dad said, son, you've got to be positive. He said, okay, I'm positive I'm going to fail this test. <laughs> and so, so some of us, we, we are positive something bad is going to happen. topical sermon goes to number three. The people who turn the world upside down are the people who are willing to sacrifice. We become so narcissistic and so self-centered, folks, 
Somebody said the religion of money exacts a harsh tribute with regard to time. The cathedral bells that called the monks to prayer and measured the time that belongs to God has long since been superseded by the digital microscopic seconds that measure the time that belongs to money. We are so narcissistic and self-centered we don't have time for each other, for ourselves, or for God. And to ask somebody to help and to minister and to care, not on your life, I'm too busy. And there's an old fable tells about the king who called in the wise man of his wise men of his kingdom and said I want you to find I want you to put together the great wisdom of the world and so they spent a years doing it and they came back with a 12 volume set he said I can't I don't have time to read all that condense that down and so they went and they worked putting together the wisdom the wise thoughts of the world and they came back with a huge one volume set commentary and and he said that's much too long condense it they came back with one sentence and the king read the sentence and said that's it that's the answer and when the world discovers the answer this answer when the world learns it it's going to be a better place The sentence was, there ain't no free lunch. I promise you this morning that the things that are done that are worthwhile will cost you something. Anybody can have mediocrity. Anybody can get along in life. Anybody can drift in life. But it costs you if you're going to have the best. Excellence demands sacrifice. Mediocrity mediocrity says, I'll do what I need to do to get by. Self-centeredness says, I'll do what pleases me. Excellence says, what will it take? And I'm willing to pay for it. Fifty years ago to tomorrow, Some of the bravest men who have ever lived stormed the beaches of Normandy. We were in Europe, and we got to read. Um, I was reading a lot. There's a lot going on there now, as you've seen on television. Tomorrow, all the television will be on the Normandy invasion. Many of you, as well as I, gave loved ones there. The blood ran red in the ocean. Um, I was talking to a man this morning who, in, after Sunday school who was involved in some of those invasions. He said, I saw hundreds of men die. And the freedom that you and I enjoy paid for at such a great price. We went to the cabinet rooms where Churchill, down in the basement of this, there in, in London, where they... they secured themselves during the blitzkrieg, the blitzing of London, and heard Churchill's own voice on recording say, never before have we owed so much to so many. Because nothing ever comes 
cheaply. One little stop at a bookstore, listen to these book titles, would you? Passport to Prosperity. True Greed, title of a book, true story. Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. Boy, I bet that's good reading. (laughs) Winning Through Intimidation. Cashing in on the American dream, that is, how to retire at age 35. The Art of Selfishness. How to get what you really want. My question is, Where are the people who turn the world upside down? They're the people who are willing to pay a price for it. Like the old colorful Cajun who wore a necklace of alligator teeth around his neck on a string. Somebody asked him one day, what is that? He said, well, it's a necklace of alligator teeth. Oh, he said, oh, like some people wear pearls on a string around their neck. He said, yeah, the only difference is anybody can open a pearl's mouth. Anybody can get along in life if you're not willing to pay the price. You'll never excel. I'll give two and then I'm out of here. Kids kid me about that. Number two. Number number four is two, two lads. The people who turn the world upside down are the people who are willing to do it together. Life is a team sport. Kipling put it like this. This is the law of the jungle. It's old and true as the sky. And the wolf that keeps it may prosper, but the wolf that breaks it will die. Like the creepers that girdle the tree trunk, this law runs forward and back, and the strength of the pack is the wolf, but the strength of the wolf is the pack. I'm becoming more and more aware of how much I need you. I hope you are becoming more and more aware of your need of me. And somebody asked an old preacher who was retiring, what is, the, what is the scope of your ministry? Tell us about it. He said, well, as a young, brash know-it-all, this was my philosophy. I saw my people out in the water drowning, and I was up on the high ground shouting to them how to get from where they were to where I am. He said, as I got older and matured, I, I, I sensed that I was, had one foot in the water, and I was holding out my hand with one foot on dry ground, trying to get them from where they were to where I am. But he said, toward the end of my ministry, I came to understand that I'm in the water drowning with them, and they're holding me up, and underneath each of us is the everlasting arms of God. I believe that's it. Is that we're all in this thing together, and we're all needful, and underneath each of us is the undergirding of God. We need each other. We can't do it alone.
And if you want to read of how the world was changed, you'll find that never one time is the word saint in the singular. It's always saints. And even the Apostle Paul had these men surrounding him from whom he depended and to whom he had this deep devotion. One last thought. People who turn the world upside down are people with character. I'm telling you what, we have a bunch of sleazeballs in the world today. And what we desperately need, and those sleazy characters are in all the way from pulpit to pew. What we desperately need are people of character. Now I've written down some things that I believe are characteristic of character. One, people of character place the same value on things that God does. People of character are people who would rather die right than to live wrong. People of character make eternity judgments rather than time judgments. That is, they believe that the decisions they make are decisions based upon how is this going to affect the eternal life of people around me and my own. And four, they have a desire to serve that is greater than the desire to be served. And G.W. Target puts it succinctly in his little short story called The Windmill. It's a story about two men flat on their back in a hospital room. Both of them are totally immobilized. One man is by the window. The other man is in the other part of the room. The man who's in the bed by the window is allowed for about 15 minutes every day to rise up on his elbows so that the fluid in his lungs uh, can be discharged. And so when he rises up on his elbow, he looks out the window. And he describes what he sees to his friend. I see a beautiful park with swans swimming on a lake. I see beautiful grass growing. I see lovely buildings, blue sky. Every day this man, every day this man lived for those moments when his friend would describe what he could not see. One day he heard a band playing outside the window. And his friend was on his elbows describing this marching band coming down the street. And the friend, away from the window, some, for a moment, this horrible thought came into his mind. Why should he be allowed to see what I can't see? Why should he have the bed by the window? He dismissed the thought and listened that night, his friend 
began to strangle. He was struggling to breathe. He was coughing and, and struggling. He, he, could, he couldn't reach his button to call for help. The friend away from the window could. But he thought, if he's not in the bed by the window, I might get the bed by the window. So he did nothing. Five minutes, 10, 15, his friend died. The nurse came in the morning to find him dead. They moved him out. When it, he thought it might be appropriate to ask, he said, is there any reason why I could not be moved over by the window? And the nurse said, of course not. And so she moved his bed over by the window. And when the nurse was gone, he struggled up on his elbows and looked out. What he saw was a blank wall. I tell you, the people who turn the world upside down are the people who are willing to be the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and the tongue of the mute and the hands of the helpless and the hope of the hopeless. Would you pray? Our Father, for this we pray, this kind of commitment, in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, look here. We're going to sing an invitation. And I know some of you have been thinking about and talking about giving your life to Christ. Today you need to come and do that. Step right out on the first stanza. Some of you have been thinking about joining our church, and I've been praying with you about it. Maybe God will lead you to do that today. Would you ask Him? Or maybe some of you who feel a need to make a public commitment of your life to, to this kind of character, this kind of living, you'd want to do it? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.